Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. Throughout history, women's skills, roles and stories have tended to be undervalued whilst attributes regarded as masculine or belonging to men have tended to be favoured. As far back as medieval times, narratives and stories about women's agencies have ranged from indifference to outright suspicion and criticism in sources often written by religious men who were committed to celibacy. Even today, women are disproportionately represented in society. Not only in the boardroom, where three in ten of the board seats in the UK are held by women, but also on screen. Film and TV have always been difficult industries to crack. But women have had to bear a disproportionate brunt of this. A recent study showed that fewer than 20% of writers and directors of the 250 highest grossing movies in the US were women. And research suggests films with a male lead show women on screen three times less than those with a female lead. And only one in five women say that they see women like themselves represented on screen, according to Sky. A lot of women's experiences have been and continue to be erased or misrepresented in society. But how does this affect the female population today? And how are people trying to make a difference to the way women are represented on screen? To answer these questions, I'm joined by NTU's Associate Professor Natasha Hodgson and lecturer Daisy Richards. Hi, but thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, Natasha, would you just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your area of research? So I'm a medieval historian um, and I focus mostly on period from the central middle ages so from about 1000 up to about 1500 uh, but my specialism really is in the crusades um, but I'm also very interested in women's history in gender history in kind of social and cultural history as well um, so yeah I've got a kind of broad palette of interest really in anything medieval um, and, and Daisy you know tell us about yourself yeah of course so um, I am a lecturer in media and communications my background is mostly in television scholarship so I'm a tv scholar which is always really fun to say um, I'm interested in things like representations of bodies in the media, particularly women's bodies, uh, feminist histories of television, um, and uh, my kind of specific research focus is actually on representations of sexual violence on television. So I look at all the different types of media that you might engage with and uh, have a look at how women are represented in those pieces of media um, and how things like sexual violence are represented as well. So thinking about narratives of women in history and in media history, what are some of the stereotypes associated with these narratives and has patriarchy affected um, affected this? Uh, it's a good question. I certainly would say patriarchy has affected the way that we all live our lives to kind of um, you know, thinking about patriarchy as this system of organising the world, this kind of way of seeing things, a set of beliefs um, that kind of dictate the way that we interact with one another and our relationships. Um, it's kind of impossible to live a life that's not affected by uh, that imagining of the world, I suppose. Um, and certainly these kinds of beliefs affect the way that women are represented in the media. Um, and we have a lot of stereotypes around different women's representations. Some of the stereotypes that I'm really interested in 
um, go all the way back to the early sort of 1900s and focus on the way that women are often represented as either victims or vamps when it comes to things like sexual violence. So you either have this representation of the perfect female victim, someone very innocent, usually a kind of white middle class woman um, who has a family um, and then you have this kind of opposite, I guess, stereotype of the vamp um, kind of victim survivor. And that's where questions about, for instance, what people are wearing when uh, assaults happen to them come up and how people are represented as engaging with attackers and so on come up in those media representations. So that's specifically to do with sexual violence. But even outside of sexual violence, representations of women are obviously really important and affected um, quite heavily by those patriarchal notions. So whether or not we just get continued recycling of tropes around things like the housewife image, um, whether we kind of are able to see women in in leadership positions in the media that we engage with, in strong roles, uh, whether we get to see complex female characters too is really important because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have very kind of 2D representations of women that uh, either present them as hero or villain with none of that really interesting, juicy stuff that seems to be kind of left aside a lot of the time for male character development instead. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in my research, I take a, you know a very long-term view of uh, of these things, and patriarchy in particular is hugely influential in the way that medieval authors wrote about women. I mean, we're talking about a time really where the majority of education was restricted to elite men who were essentially, you know, living in celibate environments. Um, the enforcement of celibacy on the priesthood happens around 11th century. Uh, we have people writing in monastic environments, so the big chronicles that we get a lot of our historical detail from tended to be written by men living deliberately in environments away from women. That's not to say they didn't have mothers or families or, you know, they didn't, it's not they had no experience of women. Um, but they were very strongly guided by their religious principles. They were using works from the Bible that, you know, uh, ideas from the Bible to, to kind of conceptualise women using stereotypes like Eve, like Mary, uh, you know, the good, the bad. <laughs> and uh, and um, it's, it's, it's then doing medieval history and, and trying to find out more about actual medieval women is, is this process of trying to strip away those layers of stereotypes to try and see you know how far actual women do they live up to these tropes do they fail and if they fail does that mean we know more about what actually happened in their lives so I think that's the stereotypes can be useful as a way of measuring how actual women are living up to these things and then through your research then and through stripping back and trying to find these stories I'm guessing there's quite a gap in terms of what we're seeing and what's been written by the male authors of that time. And then how do we actually find the detail? And what can you give us an insight into what's been missed? Uh, we, we mustn't forget that although the majority of works are by men, there are works written by women uh, during this period. Um, they just seem to have been preserved a lot less and it's sometimes hard to identify them. So, uh, But we do have amazing historians like Anna Komnena, for example, who was a Byzantine princess. Um, she writes about the, the arrival of the First Crusade at Constantinople. Um, she was um, trained in uh, in literature. She was trained in medicine. She ran her own hospital. Uh, and this is, you know, right at the beginning of the 12th century. Um, and she also uh, then is a political actor 
uh, and she and her husband, after her father dies, she, they, they have a coup. Uh, it doesn't succeed, unfortunately, and she gets imprisoned. And this is when she has all this time to write this massive long history about her father's life. And it's still sort of focused around her father. Um, but it's a really fascinating piece of work and shows clearly that, you know, educated women were there, they were interested, they were engaged with what was going on. Um, so there is evidence that we can compare with this kind of much more male-dominated narrative. Um, further, we can look at other types of evidence. We don't just have to look at histories. We've got legal records. We've got uh, material evidence like donations to churches and, and um, art and uh, people patronising their own prayer books, for example. So I think you could, if you broaden out the different types of evidence that women are involved in, you can get a much broader picture of what they, what they were actually doing. And I guess with that, we start to see maybe the achievements, the, the challenges a little bit more than just those stereotypical positions that women held. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and we, can, we can begin to see, you know, the level of agency that women do actually exert in medieval society. Uh, for a long time, you know, there was this perception, again, about the, this notion of sort of victims or, uh, you know, um, confinement that, that women are subjected to when actually they're very often actors in their own stories. Um, and they do have a say over what happens to their belongings. They, you, can, you can have a look at their wills, for example, and see what kind of goods they're leaving to people. Um, and you can also, you know, see their desire for different types of life. So, uh, I mean, one of the interesting roles of the church, actually, is that it supports women in some respects in terms of allowing them to, um, that, that they need consent for marriage. So um, although there's a lot of talk about arranged marriages, in fact, you know, a lot goes into putting together a medieval marriage and women are expected to, to have some degree of consent over that. Um, also, there are these um, opportunities, I suppose, for, for women to engage in spiritual life. So if they don't want to get married, one of the things they can do is enter a convent. And it's still a matter of confinement. But if they have a vocation to do so, actually, in some cases, the church supports them to do that over, you know, the expected marital life. So you have kind of saints lives where particular saints have kind of overcome and escaped marriages that they really didn't want to get involved in uh, by entering a convent so that they could have this spiritual life that they desired. How how have things changed then since medieval times? When will we see, Daisy, <laughs> where you're saying your research very much looked at intermedia and, and what we're seeing on our televisions. Absolutely. Well, what, uh, first things first, I presume that the invention of the television would have been a huge change uh, since medieval times. I think that there are some really interesting kind of connections that we can pull out, actually. Um, representation and representational analysis is really interesting because it doesn't necessarily show us how things are. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It's not really designed to be this kind of hall of mirrors. Um, in the media scholars are not necessarily calling for media to reflect real life because, of course, we find lots of other joys and pleasures in narratives and stories that are nothing to do with real life. And if we only represented real life, things would be quite boring and we wouldn't be able to kind of explore new worlds and new ideas, hopes for the future, traumas from the past, all of those things. So one of the things that representational 
analysis allows us to do is maybe see how things are, but also I think more importantly, see how people might imagine things to be or how people might hope things are. And that's really what kind of representations of women show us in the media, shows us perhaps what some people think women should do, not necessarily what they actually do. Um, So it's interesting to kind of hear that Perhaps we have all these perceptions of medieval women um, and, again, what people imagine they were doing that are not necessarily in line with what they were actually doing, or at least some of them anyway. And things have certainly changed. Um, We have a a great deal more kind of diversity in our representations in the media. And this is something that is being pushed for and propelled forwards every year. Um, And we see a lot more kind of different types of women, especially, but different types of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. We see stories about people of different races and ethnicities, people with different types of bodies, disabled people. We see just so much more now on our screens than even a decade ago. So this kind of progress is always coming, but it's hard won. That is something that is important to kind of know it's not always a case of oh as time goes on naturally we're going to become you know more um accepting more tolerant as a society we're going to want to see more diverse representations sometimes you are really fighting for those representations um and one of the things that i'm really interested in is the way that some broadcasters have perhaps been really central in perpetuating quite harmful stereotypes around representations of women in the past and how they are almost trying to make up for that now. So one of the broadcasters that I research most specifically is HBO, um, who've done, of course, a range of programs that I'm sure people will have seen. And I look at some of those, including Game of Thrones, Big Little Lies, um, things like Euphoria, which is quite a recent program. And you can see quite an interesting divide between a time sort of 10 years ago, maybe not even that, when HBO was the subject of a lot of negative publicity regarding how they represented female characters and just the sheer amount of sexual violence um, and kind of trauma for female characters that they represented. Um, often in a really gratuitous nature. So we would have kind of representations of sexual violence that were highly eroticized and highly problematic. Um, Or we would have, um, especially in something like Game of Thrones, the depiction of characters who begin a relationship uh, out of kind of sexual assault or sexual violence. Um, And then suddenly the female character will fall in love with her attacker. And then we're kind of encouraged to think, Uh, that they're an amazing couple and uh, that's a great kind of relationship and we enjoy that aspect of it as audiences in some cases. So we have that kind of history there with HBO, for instance. And then we have some more modern programs that seem to almost be a response to that. It seems a bit like they're kind of holding their hands up, a bit of a mea culpa. They're saying, we're really sorry. We know that we kind of abused our female characters quite a lot. We did it for shock value. Um, We recognize that and we're going to start telling sort of female-led stories that still feature some discussions of things like sexual violence, but that do so in a really different way. And that's where we move on to things like Big Little Lies, which is a program that centers on an instance of sexual violence, but that is female led and was uh, really helmed by Reese Witherspoon's production company. Um, And things like uh, Mayor of Easttown, which is a kind of detective program starring Kate Winslet. Um, that also revolves around violence against women, but has this really complicated, complex, strong female detective character, which is played by Kate Winslet, um, helming the whole thing. So you can see those changes. Um, and it's 
fascinating to think about where we might kind of go from here. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think it, it, in many respects as well, when we look at medieval culture, their culture is a space for fantasy, for ex- exploration, for exploring taboos in much the same way sometimes that, that modern media does. So you can look at, I mean, they invented romance for a start. They invented you know, like romantic literature um, and, you know, they used huge allegories to kind of explore different ideas, different social problems, gender problems. You do have kind of... Um, uh, you know, the idea of Amazon warrior women and all of those kind of things which pop up in, in Game of Thrones in various types of uh, modern, what we call medievalism, which is the like popular imagining of what, what the medieval was like. Um, and I think with all of those things, you, you, absolutely, you need a space to explore. Um, but what, what needs to happen and as well is this kind of understanding of what women would like to see in that fantasy space in that in that kind of uh you know that that's been missing i think for quite a long time so how how they would like to explore their lives and how they would like to explore you know the different roles that they play and ultimately you know it's not about women being one particular type of thing or another type of thing as you say it's about complexity of character and part of the work that i do looking at women in the crusades is that um, very often medieval history is about championing, championing particular women in, you know, for, for achieving something or their agency or their power and actually saying, look at this queen, wasn't she amazing? What do we do when women do things that are bad, when, when they do things that are wrong, you know, when they do succumb to religious hatred or, or those types of things? Should we ignore those histories or should we take, you know, in the same way, you know, we've got to be accountable for, for those types of things and we've got to explore those issues and why do women get involved in in these types of of, of situations? Um, how can understanding the history of you know those calls to to, to religious warfare um, help us to understand the process of radicalization today, for example, uh, which has all been very topical in the news at the moment? But um, I think that that that's an area really where research can help us to explore those problems in an effective way and as you say to build a better society where you know we 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 are we are not kind of just regurgitating the tropes of yesteryear um but actually challenging those and understanding people as complex human beings <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's kind of uh, the the job of of representational analysis too in some ways it's really picking up on the idea that Again, representations don't have to reflect real life. Um, and in no way should anyone kind of approach the media as this kind of tool of influence. That's not how the media works. We kind of moved away from what we call media effects theory a long time ago, um, which is where, you know, some earlier scholars would perhaps argue that if we see something, we're going to copy it necessarily, or we're going to do that ourselves. Um, and I'm sure that you know, people will have heard many times over moral panics related to that kind of theory. We get it in relation to things like video games all the time. Um, if someone plays a violent video game, does that engender violence? Um, and those theories have pretty much been widely discredited because we know the media directly can't make us do anything. However, what representations do and what's important about representations is that they normalize things. The more we see of a certain character type, the more we see women in certain roles, the more we see a certain narrative play out, the more we think, oh, that's normal. That's where women should be. That's what the whole kind of 
um, story is about necessarily. Um, and I should uh, perhaps consider emulating that in my life at some point. So it's not necessarily about direct impact or influence. It's about over time, the building up of these representations, the building up of these kind of narratives. They don't leave a lot of freedom or movement or flexibility to think about other things. So if you think to yourself, oh, you know, I want to write a female character or, or, or a kind of narrative about women that does something different, immediately that is not normal it's abnormal so it's harder to get it funded it's harder to kind of um get it made in the first place it's harder to get it to audiences because it's different so that's what representation does it normalizes stuff and that's where uh, my work comes in it's about questioning challenging those norms and so where are the from your perspective then where are the main challenges still lying you know what what is it that's limiting perhaps still that portrayal of women's depth I suppose you mentioned that at the very beginning Daisy and it's those kind of the the detail you know we, we sort of always have a level or we've got a perception or a portrayal of a, of a female character but it doesn't have that depth. Yeah I think it's uh, it's a lot to do with kind of really historical and traditional beliefs in what women's role should be in society and it's important to mention that Things like patriarchal systems that that see women this way, they affect men too. So they actually also limit the kinds of stories that we can tell about men. Um, and even today, um, I will not spoil it, but if anyone's watching The Last of Us, um, which is a HBO series um, about kind of zombies, although I know people will not be happy with me using the Z word, um, a cordyceps virus anyway. Um, and it stars a really strong, interesting male character. Um, and at times, you know, he cries and he has these really intense moments of self-doubt and he thinks he's going to fail in his job and he thinks that he's going to let everybody down around him. Um, and it's important for us to to understand that actually that shouldn't be that abnormal. And yet even this week, I've seen lots of articles about how strong and amazing this performance was. Um, and I'm convinced, really, that this is simply because we don't often see men in those kinds of roles on screen. We don't often see those kinds of emotional roles. Um, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, tears falling into this this actor's lap, basically. And we just don't get to see that. Um, and the same can be said for women. What we end up having are kind of very separate 2D representations of women um, where they can't or they don't have the space to explore complex feelings that as humans we literally do have every day. And I think this is also to do with likability. Women are often expected to be very likable. And it's hard sometimes for us to engage with female characters when we don't like them very much. It's really difficult for us to get behind female characters um, who are leading a narrative if we actually think, oh, they've gone off and done something we don't really love. They're making decisions we don't agree with. They are maybe brash or quote unquote aggressive or bossy. And we think, I just don't like that person. So it's difficult for me to engage with that person potentially. But actually, even those feelings are rooted in a notion that women should be likable, which is not really something that we aim that much at men. We don't really care whether they're likable uh, most of the time, sometimes, but most of the time we're happy for them to be strong or we're happy for them to be hypermasculine or whatever. Um, whereas, again, those stereotypes around women's demureness and passivity and the way that they should perhaps be confined to certain spaces or roles in life, they are they are still with us and they perpetuate through the media we engage with. So I'm assuming it's the same in historical stories, that those characters were only seeing uh, 
characters portrayed in a certain way, whether it's male or female? Are we losing, have we got a limit of detail there? Talking about the challenges, I guess um, for us, you know, as medieval historians, people people conceptualise the medieval still as a very masculine world. They think about castles, they think about swords, they think about knights, they might think about the damsel in a cast, you know, the damsel in distress, that kind of thing. It's a very kind of extremely stereotypical picture um, which needs to be challenged and it needs to be challenged through schools and education it needs to be challenged in the in the GCSE curriculum in the A-level curriculum Um, we need to have more female figures represented Um, we need to know more about their histories those those female figures need to be more diverse so we need to be looking not just at medieval Europe we need to be looking at global picture where we can learn about uh, authority figures who are female across the world um and um and there's there are so many you know so much work has been done but it still seems to be kind of a bit um attached to these academic circles and it needs to be kind of out there more generally in the population i think to try and engage and, and i think there are there are good books out there nowadays where you know you have important you know sort of a hundred women you should know about in history and you know all of those kinds of things which i think are a really good step but I think we need to build it better into our education system lower down. So if we think about it for history, you know, um, if you don't choose to do history at GCSE, the last time you will learn about women in history is going to be when you're 13, 14. And that's it, you know, unless you choose to go and follow it up, you know, yourself. So so I think, you know, we, we need to make a, 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 a the best that we can of that opportunity to, to get diverse stories, to get stories about women into our into our primary schools and into that early stage of education, um, but then more generally, uh, you know, just thinking about that, the, the, absolutely, we need to incorporate the balance of of women and men in in into history, so that we have a full picture of what's going on, and also to think about masculinity. I mean, a lot of my my work actually on the Crusades has recently has been to do with masculinity, and what are the pressures which force men into taking the cross and going to the Holy Land? How are they manipulated? How do they, how do they put pressure points on honour and shame, which were really important peer pressure um, markers for, for nobles and lords at the time, to say, well, this is, you know, if you're a true Christian and you want to do, you know, and you, you, you believe in God, then it, as a good man, you must also take the cross and go on crusade. So it's, it's thinking about all of those different angles. I mean, one of the things that we haven't really discussed is where women acting in certain ways are seen to be masculine um, and and whether that, that is seen to be like a positive thing or a negative thing sometimes. And I see that quite a lot in histories where women act abnormally. You know, they're, they're, they're accused of taking on masculine roles and either sort of subverting them. Uh, sometimes it can be in a positive way, but sometimes it can be seen very negatively as well and they're assuming power that they don't have the right to. So that's that's another area of investigation for me. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. I'm uh, I'm really kind of interested in the way that you kind of pick out the way that peer pressure and things about feelings like honour and shame are used to perhaps encourage or manipulate men into acting in a certain way. And and I feel that in terms of modern media representations of gender, not much has actually changed in that sense. I still think that those those kinds of key emotions are used to represent men's actions in the media and to show 
I guess, what a quote-unquote good man should be like and what a bad man is like and how to perform good masculinity, acceptable, palatable societal masculinity versus performing it abnormally and therefore operating on like the margins of society. And when we see men and women together on television, we often get that dichotomy where men will act out of a sense of honor and shame in terms of their character, often to protect women. So again, just really upholding that sense of passive female, active male, um, and really upholding that sense that male characters role is to perform good masculinity, to be the kind of provider, the protector, the aggressor, the kind of caregiver. And if they don't do that, then they will feel a sense of shame. And if they do that, they're doing it because they're bound by honor to their families, to the women in their lives to do so. Um, and it is interesting because one of the kind of key media theorists who thinks about gender in a really interesting way, um, Judith Butler, explores this idea that actually all in all, gender is just one big performance. Um, we are born into the world and actually we learn how to be feminine or we learn how to be masculine because of the things we engage with, our upbringings, the attitudes around us, family, school, the institutions we engage with and so on. Um, and that then we ourselves learn how to perform good femininity or good masculinity and then we repeat that ourselves and we contribute to the cycle. Other people learn from us, they're born into the world, they look up to the people around them naturally um, and then they perform good femininity and good masculinity. Um, and so that comes to that, that normative. Yeah, and that's what makes it normal. Exactly, that's what makes it normal. It's how we contribute. It's a bit of a kind of cycle that we all take part in. But gender, according to Judith Butler, is not necessarily this inherent, natural, ingrained thing. It's more of a structure. It's almost like drag, really. It's something we put on every day. We take it off. We perform it differently in different scenarios, environments, contexts. Um, yeah, so it's fascinating to think about the fact that actually it's something that we don't do directly, but we, you know, we perform. Well, I was going to ask you, actually, as in how is these portrayals of characters affecting women today? But you've kind of answered it, haven't you, in many respects? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, people, people always kind of, I think perhaps people look for things that, that are familiar to them. In the in the characters that they like and they admire and they you know they so so people are drawn towards particular individuals maybe because they have some shared life experience or there's, there there are all sorts of different reasons but but I think yeah it's um, it it's really complex and it's embedded at such a deep level that it's absolutely worth taking the time to think about and unpack some of those forces that that I mean one of the things we do as historians is we try and you know get encourage our students at the beginning to to really think about what's your positionality where do you come from what what are the things that have influenced you and of course gender is one aspect of that but there's also you know all sorts of social factors you know uh, um, economic status wealth and in the medieval period as well like gender doesn't act on its own it's not it's not it's one of a number of factors which build up the individual and how the individual is perceived in society. Um, so it's only really with a thorough understanding of all of the, the interactions between those different categories that you get that you get to see where where what your standing is in society and what's permissible for you. So, for example, with with medieval women, um, for the most part, 
If elite women went on crusade, rich women who had money and power and authority, it was fine because they could afford to pay knights and the chroniclers didn't really mind that. If you didn't have any money and you wanted to go, you were under suspicion of being a prostitute and generally written about really harshly um, and could possibly lead the army into sin and therefore God would make them unsuccessful. So, <laughs> so this is a real... So, it's not your womanhood necessarily that's an issue. It is your social status. And I think that is something, again, that, you know, it needs to be uh, mitigated with all of those other factors in order to kind of really get a sense of, 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 uh, of how to understand uh, where people have come from and why they're acting in a certain way. Yeah, and, and stories in general, they, they help us make sense of the world, don't they? They help us understand what goes on around us. Narratives, representations, they help us make sense of massive feelings that we all have and big things that we experience and also things we don't understand, you know, concepts that are still out of reach to us. Love, death, all these massive important moments that as humans we go through and we want to know, well, how can I understand this feeling? And just take, for instance, things like poetry. A lot of people will not engage with poetry for the majority of their life. And yet in big moments, you know, when they are falling in love, when they are, for instance, at a funeral, suddenly we see a reappearance of this kind of media. People look to stories to help them get through and make sense of massive emotional shifts in their life. So they are massively important to us. Um, what gets represented is important. Who gets represented is important. Um, and as you've mentioned, it's it's not just kind of about... Uh, more diverse representations, although that's one part of it, um, because we don't want to end up in a in a kind of situation where things are just tokenistic, where we just provide a kind of um, an outlook of, oh, here's equal amounts of women and equal amounts of men. Instead, we want the kind of same complexity, the same depth to these kinds of characters and to the research that we carry out on the things that we engage with. Um, because it's all well and good saying, well, there's half men and half women in this particular module, let's say, this class that we're teaching. But if the women all occupy a similar type of role or if the men all um, are explored in a different kind of degree of depth, then we aren't getting that kind of level of equality that we'd perhaps like to see. Um, so what's been done, what's, be, what's happening to kind of retrieve and challenge perhaps some of those stereotypes and, and retrieve that information to be able to give a, a far greater depth of story. There's definitely changes going on production-wise in media, which is good to see. So um, a lot of the kind of responses, perhaps quite simplistic responses to diversity and representations in media, often people will say the answer to this is to get more diversity kind of behind the camera or in production roles. And I definitely think that that does help us kind of challenge some stereotypes. Um, but on the other hand, that's tricky because it kind of imagines a world in which women can't perpetuate sexism themselves, which is not true. Um, we've all been kind of brought up in similar environments in that we all exist in a kind of patriarchal society. Um, and women are equally as likely to kind of objectify or sexualize as much as men are in some cases. So whilst diversity in production roles and behind the camera for media is really important, and we ought to be funding and providing schemes for more diverse production of media, um, it's also important to kind of get media literacy into the minds of um, everyone in our society. So in a similar way, as, as you were saying, Natasha, in terms of thinking about educating people quite early on, um, it would be great if we could have a similar kind of attitude to media literacy so that 
students and and then people in society would know this is just one representation. This is not the representation. I'm engaging with this piece of media and I can enjoy this character and the narrative and where it's going without necessarily thinking that this is the only thing this character can do or this is the only role for women. Um, so yeah, it, we are seeing changes in the diversity of representations, which is great. Um, and then I guess it's research, uh, like hopefully the research that we're doing, um, that helps kind of uncover and, and re-examine certain representations and brings things to light that perhaps were covered up a little bit or perhaps just less focused on in history um, and things that have perhaps been slightly more neglected um, in media histories too. I think I think one of the big sort of changes that's happened in the field of medieval women um you wouldn't <laughs> it sounds like a strange thing to say but uh is 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 a is a better and different conception of power uh for women uh because I think up until you know maybe sort of the the 90s early noughties people were still very much basing notions of power on very masculine understandings of power and what that meant in terms of military strength in terms of all of these different things so a big sort of change a sea change in approaches to medieval queenship for example have been to think about the way that power is defined in masculine and feminine terms and create a new definition of what female power looks like in medieval society so that we we have a better way of comparing um, and then further, we've had big movements towards looking at the global Middle Ages. So getting away from this very Eurocentric white kind of aspect of, of medieval history and thinking much more about medieval Africa, medieval Asia, uh, pre-Columbian societies um, in, 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 in the Americas and just kind of being able to draw from a much better and wider range of case studies on medieval women to see how they how they develop so differently in different cultures and societies outside kind of this this very kind of small corner of the world which we <laughs> we we inhabit um so yeah i think i think those have been two major changes but obviously there's still a lot of work to be done and getting those stories out there to people i mean this is where a role of the media is potentially very important because popularizing those narratives, telling different stories, unusual stories, can be really, really important in engaging people's interest in the first place. And then they can go on to, to, to find out more about the history. So I guess just to, to, to sort of finish up, tell me what you would like to happen through the research. What change would you like to see or do you see needs to happen? I've been very kind of heartened by the attention that television studies as a field um, has paid to objects that we would consider um, low quality media, essentially. So one of the things that I write about and I'm really interested in is actually the relationship between what we would call high-end television or premium television, stuff that HBO produces, essentially, that costs upwards of a million dollars an episode sometimes. How these specific programs figure themselves as high quality and how they often contain the most frequent and the most graphic depictions of violence against women. So I'm really interested in sort of teasing out, well, why is that? Why is it that in the really kind of high-end television, we see so much of that? And what can we do to challenge those representations, to reclaim some of that land, and to maybe offer up some different representations of women? Um, and it's been, as I say, really heartening to see scholarship kind of focus on that, but also move towards 
what we would consider low quality media too. So things like soaps um, and things like reality programs that are often figured as kind of less worthwhile in terms of discussions, but often contain some of the most revolutionary and interesting representations of gender. Um, Often, you know, some of the soaps that people are watching every single night contain some of the most important and um, transformative stories of things like sexual violence or, or domestic violence or specific issues relating to female characters. So it's been great to see that kind of scholarship um, brought to the forefront. But I also think that one of the things that seems to be coming around a little bit more is a focus on intersectionality. So that this term intersectionality was kind of coined by a, a woman of color in the 1980s, Kimberly Crenshaw, who wanted a better, more thorough way to think about gender and to write about gender and representations of gender. And she was basically saying, how can we talk about women as if all they are is just women and not take into account people's class, people's backgrounds, people's race, uh, people's age, people's abilities and disabilities. And so she proposed this new way of looking at things, an intersectional way of looking at things, which is where we take into account all of those intersecting factors. Because if a woman experiences oppression in her life, she doesn't just experience oppression as a woman, she might experience it as a black woman, she might experience it as a working class woman. All of these different things contribute to how we experience the world and how we engage with representations. Um, and so to see more complex kind of addressing of intersectional issues like how gender and class work together and how characters can, I guess, inhabit those different worlds at the same time and how that affects how we engage with them that's been really important and I look forward to yeah seeing some some more of that in future I mean I, I, in in a sense for me um I, I feel like we we live in uncertain times um and quite worrying times in some respects when we look at um you know levels of misogyny um, when we look at levels of uh, race, racial hatred, when we look at levels of religious hatred, um, I work on a time when you know the Crusades happened and the authorities supported and inflamed religious violence, and I, you know, I I feel like it's really important that those stories are told and are remembered, um, because very often I have situations where students say, "Well, that would never happen today." Uh, but, you know, you can point to any number of things where if we don't remember those narratives and if we don't tell different stories, we are just going to perpetuate these same cycles because people forget what happens when you 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 ignore history. Um, so for me, I think there's a, there's a very important uh, there's a very important lesson. But also, I think it's important. It's an important practice to think about things from different perspectives and to encourage people to think about things from different perspectives, from male perspectives, from female perspectives, uh, as you say, from intersectional perspectives, which are so important, um, in order to just inc increase tolerance of people's differences and to, and to you know, really challenge those people who want to make things black and white uh, and, and really engage with, um, you know, uh, those, those societal problems that we have. And although I, I feel often, you know, that the area of history that I look at is, is a quite a small, obscure <laughs> thing. Actually, when, when we come to talk about the issues that are raised by 
by looking at gender, by looking at religious uh, warfare. I think these are all things which are current and important for people to explore uh, in, in, in any dialogue today. Um, and, you know, to challenge this kind of post-truth <laughs> society. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, would, I would say there are, there are big challenges, but a lot of work is being done. And all of it is adding towards, a, uh, I think, a much more nuanced understanding of the human experience, of the lived experience, which is really important. Well, thank you both so much. It's been really interesting. Um, if you want to find out more about Daisy or Natasha's work, please have a look at the episode description. You've been listening to the Research Reimagined podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.